Hello and welcome to another edition of the Legal Geeks. I'm here as always with my blogging buddy, Josh. How are you, Josh? I am sober and well. So <laughs> I am sober. I'm not so well. I am recovering from a cold, which is annoying and has slowed me down um, on viewing the show that we are here to discuss tonight, a show that I've been looking forward to very much, and not just because it has three of my favorite things. It has a superhero lead who's a woman. Woo-woo! The main actress is someone that I have adored for years, although this is very different from the roles I normally see and love her in, but I just love her to death. And then, of course, it's also my name. We're talking about Jessica Jones, so how can I not watch this show? It's very exciting. It is totally uh intoxicating and how you get, <laughs> get drawn into it, that you just get sucked into this world, you care about the characters. It's a fascinating, amazing show. It's Marvel's second show with a woman in the lead, which is... Was the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt? Is that the first one? Uh, n- is well, Netflix ne- a new... Or Orange is the New Black? That's a Netflix show too, right? True, but I'm talking about Marvel. So oh, a Marvel we'll, shows. Sorry. Okay. I thought you were talking about Netflix shows. I'm like, actually, they've been pretty good. They, they, they globally Frankie have. Greece. Yes, they're pretty awesome. Not everything in the Netflix catalog because that's huge with all their <laughs> original programming. Uh, Marvel. So the Agent, okay. Carter, Agent Carter being the first. And now we have this. Now, in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., lots of strong female characters as well. But as far as a solo lead, yes, you're right. Solo lead, and it was very engrossing. So let's talk about some of the legal issues from it, because you and I could play fans and just gush about how much we love the show. But we're and gonna... Kristen Ritter. And Luke Cage. Oh, I forgot already the actor who plays Luke Cage, but yeah, I'm already in love. Um, but okay, yes, we should. I should also note that, again, because I've been horribly sick since it came out, I've not been able to binge it. Um, and this, of course, is always a challenge with a binging kind of show, right? It actually was just released last Friday, so it hasn't even been out a week yet. So we're going to try and limit our discussion. I've only seen, full disclosure, the first two episodes. Josh, I think you've seen the entire season already, right? I've seen the entire season and a couple of them twice. <laughs> so we're going to limit our talk, though, for this episode, for this, uh, I guess, episode of the Geese to kind of some of the earlier shows, right? That way Josh hasn't spoiled the entire season for me, but... Uh... I would not spoil it for you, so let's just... We're going we're gonna to focus on uh, the first two, which is Ladies' Night and mm-hmm. aka Crush Syndrome. So let's, let's get legal. So let's talk about private investigators and law firms. I know I've worked with a couple firms that have used PIs in different ways. Uh, have you? Um, not directly, indirectly, yes, a couple of times. And it is always interesting. I also have to say, of course, anytime I think private investigators and law firms, my first thought, of course, is the wonderful Clinda from The Good Wife. I mean, she kind of, you know, set the bar. Jessica Jones is probably going to meet it, but Clinda was seriously total badass, again, with the conflict. Um, Oh, I love Kalinda, too. So, actually, if Kalinda could somehow be worked into the second season of Jessica Jones, that would be, like, super wish fulfillment for me. But anyway, um, so, no, I have not had much direct experience. I don't usually work on those type of cases that involve the PIs. Those often tend to be a little bit more sorted. Um, So, Josh, I'd love to. I bet you have some good stories about your work with the PIs. Just a handful and nothing crazy. Yeah, a construction defect case where there was mold 
and the family claimed an allergic reaction to the mold that was serious. And so we went like, hey, we're going to need a PI to investigate this. Then after looking at the medical reports and also seeing the kid react extremely negatively during a site inspection of the property, we're like, yeah, that's unnecessary. This is, <laughs> tell the carrier this is very bad and it's their medical problems are real. So that was that went in the report. Uh, other cases involving fraud where you have people stealing things from a business maybe running fraudulent credit card transactions, you know, just that double dealing behind the scenes stuff where you need a PI to help. Uh, I have a friend who's a PI and he describes his job as like they're retained to prevent fraud. And so (laughs) prevent fraud upon the court. So, which is how they go in and they investigate. Uh, He told and, of course, they're working as an agent of the attorney, or if they're working as an agent of the attorney, I should say, because sometimes she's hired independently. But when she's hired by the law firm, presumably then any conversations she has with the attorney who hired her um, or with the attorney and the client or even with the client at the direction of the attorney should, in theory, be covered by the attorney-client um, privilege, the communication privilege. And if it is for litigation, which it often is, it could also be covered then by attorney work product protections as well i'm assuming that's my understanding the way i've seen it applied like with reports that they're preparing Um, some insurance uh, companies will retain pis to investigate uh, claims normally in fraud like say sure workers comp you know the the person who's claiming workers comp who's then seen playing tennis you know it's stuff like that now you don't need i wonder how pis business have been impacted though by facebook you don't need pis anymore you just need to go on their facebook page That you were playing tennis last week. PIs have to know how to capture that. And sure, mm-hmm. a screenshot would work because they could take a screenshot, which should have the time and the date when it was captured, which would go towards admissibility. Wouldn't that be discoverable, though, in uh, Discovery Right? My eDiscovery guru couldn't you it, get the social media pages it, if they're relevant. They are, but the way that they can be changed quickly and profile pictures changed quickly or made private or even deleted, you know, if you see something, if you suspect something, you know, if there's the person with a back injury and they post a video on Facebook right in a mechanical bowl, you're going to want to capture that. Right away. Right away. Or you also see it in trademark infringement and other things, but for the, the sexy PI stuff. You want them to defensively capture it. And again, a screenshot can work, but there are great tools out there to actually capture metadata and everything right from the social media pages, Mm -hmm. which is really fascinating tech on how that works. Yeah. All right. Well, back to PI. Sorry, I got into a little bit of an e-discovery tangent there. But um, PIs obviously can provide a lot of services for law firms. And one that Jessica actually provided in the first episode wasn't so much a PI kind of thing. She was actually uh, operating as a service processor. Exactly, which is really interesting to to think about a super or person with enhanced abilities (laughs) being a processor because that's a dangerous job. Yes. Not everybody is really thrilled to get served with a lawsuit. Bad things can happen to process servers, so you kind of need someone who's tough. And Jones is a fantastic process server because people might underestimate her because she's a short woman and they're not going to be afraid of somebody 
like that. It's like, oh, but she has extremely enhanced strength. She can pick up a freaking car. You're not going to intimidate her, so people could underestimate her. That, and actually, now that I think about it, I have I am aware of cases where process service service. Sorry, my mind is struggling with the cold. Um, but people serving process have actually had to conduct basically stakeouts because some people, when they know there's a lawsuit out there, will do everything possible to avoid being served. And so we have I have heard of cases where they have stakeouts, multiple people involved, cameras trying to track down this person so that they can serve the process. Uh, Oh, good Lord. Services serve the summons. So anyway, so Jessica Jones actually in her role as PI and with her enhanced capabilities does make the perfect person to help out the law firm with those tough cases. Which was in this case going after a gentleman's club where a (laughs) dancer fell and had a traumatic head injury and was suffering brain damage. The future defendant took the point of view that she was dumb anyway, which just goes to show what a delightful person mm-hmm. that you could end up with a, as a defendant. That deposition would be tons of fun uh, going after somebody like that. But more on that in a moment. Well, so- we should explain to people too. I don't know if everyone realizes that, you know, if I'm the plaintiff and I file a lawsuit against you, Josh, I can file the complaint with the court. But then I have a deadline. It's usually 90 to 120 days where I have to serve you with a summons in that complaint. And that summons actually will tell you, you have been served. You have 20 days, 30 days, 45 days to answer this complaint. And that kind of starts the clock ticking. But in the court, if you choose after you have been served not to answer, then the court can enter default judgments against you or you can actually start litigating the case. But basically, until I actually serve you, that's what kind of makes the complaint real. Before that, it's filed with the court, but the court's not going to do anything until they know that the defendant has been properly notified. And there are strict rules, too, on how you can um, serve the summons. But until the defendant has been properly notified, the court's not going to touch that complaint. So that's why for any plaintiff, if they really want to sue somebody, it's not the filing of the complaint that's hard or that matters. It's actually serving the defendant. That's what starts everything. Exactly. Is it there and is it fair? And in this case, you know, Professor Galvez, (laughs) civil procedure, it's like rock on, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful little phrase for any law students listening. So what happens, Jones confronts the defendant, attempts to serve him. He tries driving away. She picks up the car, (laughs) then goes over because he's in freak out mode. She says something about having laser eyes because she's just messing with this jerk at this point in time, hands him the summons and takes a picture of him which would have location metadata on the time and place of service, which was absolutely brilliant. I thought, hot, damn, the people writing this read service of process rules. Way to go. Yeah, they get it. What would then happen, uh, Jessica would uh, fill out an affidavit explaining when he was served, where a physical description of him and that there's a presumption that that's all correct 
once that affidavit is filed to the court, it's assumed that, okay, he has been served. And he could then challenge how a service was made. But, um, yes, that affidavit, otherwise, once it's filed, the court assumes, okay, process has been handled here. You know, I couldn't find any cases with cars being picked up in New York by a process server, which I did look. I, I did look for process. Maybe a tow truck. Yeah, roughing people up. I, I was looking for stuff like that. And most times when it's a pedestrian versus an automobile, uh, courts are going to go like, you were in the car and you're complaining? Yeah, you were the one who actually had a deadly weapon. So you're not going to get off that easy. So I do think her service process would have been proper. I, I don't think he would have a challenge to it. No. Um, now, granted, he never touched him. He could claim that he felt threatened, and I don't know if that would go very far. Yeah. But that would be the the argument that he would have. Uh, another interesting thing about the uh, dancer case would be because I don't know what else to call it because we don't <laughs> we don't know the plaintiff's name, which is why I made one up on the blog post of Ginger Champagne. Uh, no, no, excuse me, Ginger Chardonnay, Ginger Chardonnay. I thought. I just thought that was hysterical. Uh, suing glitter dreams. Uh, but when you look at the fact that there were people with adverse business interests to the defendant funding the lawsuit of yes. the plaintiff, that raises other ethical issues with lawsuit funding. And yes. we'll say that for another time, but there there are issues with that. Well, and I will say, I think most states generally do have um, – rules in there, usually either the state bar or the Supreme Court issues them. But yes, as far as there are instances where somebody besides a client can pay for the legal services to the client, but it usually requires all kinds of disclosures and the attorneys. And here's where it gets tricky and where I'm assuming it's not being followed by Jerry, who we have to discuss next because I love her. Um, but that normally it says, okay, even if, you know, third party over here is paying for the defense my, or for this lawsuit, my loyalty is to you, the client, and I'm not taking direction or guidance from them. And that, um, that's where I'm sure the problem is here. So, but we have to talk about the awesomeness that is Carrie Ann Moss in this show. Exactly. So a uh, couple things on just the PI. Generally, they're hired for um, determining the credibility of witnesses or other persons. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whereabouts of missing per, uh, persons, hmm. location of lost or stolen property, uh, identity, habits, movements of persons or organizations, and uh, the securing of evidence to be used before any authorizing investigating committee or in a trial, civil or criminal cases. So there's a lot that PIs can do. And Jessica says in the second episode, she is a licensed PI. Yeah, because usually there are state licensing requirements for that, and some, I think, maybe minimal level of classes or things that you have to go through. Exactly. Well, let's let's talk about Hogarth, uh, Cho, and Benowitz LLP in New York, because <laughs> I saw that, and my reaction was like, hey, is this a big law firm? And then you realize Hogarth, Jerry, is, is the first name on, on the the firm Mm -hmm. and there are many issues with uh, women making partner in law firms and Mm -hmm. so my thoughts were like is this a big law firm which would make her even more impressive to be the first name on a big law firm or is it what 
started in California a few years ago, uh, there, there are women attorneys who are moms who wanted more work-life balance. So what these firms were nicknamed were mommy firms, where you had uh, women attorneys who were moms who started their law firms because they got fed up with all of the unpleasantness of big law. Mm-hmm. And made these firms for themselves where huh. they, they could have work-life balance and guys work there too because there are – I say m- I know a lot of male lawyers who mm-hmm. want work-life balance as well. And there are a lot of male attorneys who are dads who go like, I do want to see my kids grow up. I don't want right. to come home and find out that what, you're 10 now? How'd that happen? I don't want cats in the cradle to be real. Yeah, it's like – this can't be happening to me. I am my own father. And then they st- the cradle and the silver moon. I'm, I'm holding the lighter now. <laughs> <laughs> so watching that, you never, you get a, a sense that it is a powerful firm. Yeah, it's, she's not a mommy figure. She, they do mention her wife, but, you know, if she does have kids, I don't know. She even talked about, you know, how late she's working at night. So, and again, I work late at night too, but that's usually not from my cool skyscraper office. It's from home after the kids go to bed kind of thing. So, but it is different. I know moms who do work in the big skyscrapers and work late at night. Um, so it is tough to tell, but uh, she seems pretty high powered, I have to say. They were either a powerhouse mid-sized litigation firm like a litigation boutique yeah uh so they're either in that category or they're big law i think grant we don't see the entire law firm we don't go on a giant tour of it but we see enough of it to go okay it's at least two floors they have some really impressive conference rooms with great technology i know lots of mid-sized firms like that um, there's at least, I think there's a reference to 15 partners, but I'm not positive we need to go back, which would make them kind of in that mid-sized category because there would be probably at least three associates per partner. So maybe two. It, maybe it, two. Let's it, leverage these days. Leverage used to be a bigger thing. Um, but yeah, even if you said two, says so 30, says so 45, let's say another 15 to 20 paralegals. So yeah, that's going to be decent size. And again, it looks like they're spending high dollar on that real estate. So Exactly. So that was interesting just to think about that. The other thing that was interesting about Jerry's practice is she does criminal defense and civil litigation. You don't see a lot of blending of that. And that's the one area where you do tend to see some overlap in some of the litigation uh, departments is with white collar, right? That is the one area of criminal that often does, that civil litigators will often do. But um, you're right. Otherwise, you know, usually civil litigators, uh, myself certainly included, try to stay away from the criminal side of things. Yeah, she was handling negotiations in a patent dispute. So... And also makes reference that I'm your criminal defense attorney when she sees Hope. But is she just for Hope? See, my impression was that she was doing this for Hope as a failure, uh, as a favor, almost like big law firms um, like mine in Texas, where we took on, uh, you know, criminal death penalty appeal as a pro bono thing. Um, you know, I kind of took that as she's doing this as a favor for Jessica. She normally would not be handling criminal defense. I got the impression from the span of the series. Ah, see uh, where I'm hurt. All right. That she does both. Okay. Which, All right. Which is a little atypical. Yes. Grant, I've seen in boutique firms 
partners who do both, but they're either really focused about it, they're really careful about it because they're different. Yes, very different. And so you generally, you can have a firm where you have some partners who do criminal defense and you can have some partners who just do civil and they, they refer things back and forth, but you don't normally see people with a foot in both worlds. It happens, it, it, but there's risk to it. Uh, yes. There is risk to it because there are different issues on the line. And so, well, different procedures. I mean, that was part of my stress when I studied for the Texas bar is trying to keep, not only did I have to keep federal and state civil procedural rules separate, I then had to keep them separate from federal and state criminal procedural rules. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? How am I supposed to keep four different sets of procedural rules straight? That was by far my biggest stress for the bar. And it's a stress for people in real life. <laughs> Not for me. As soon as I took the bar, I'm like, criminal, gone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When people go like, hey, what do you think about this? It's like, you know, I can tell you high level stuff, but. I can you... tell you what I saw in The Good Wife, but otherwise I don't have an answer for you. <laughs> yeah, I would. I have friends who do criminal defense work and you should give them a call. Yes. Here's, here's the contact information. <laughs> Good mm-hmm. luck with all of that as I back away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I much rather deal with money and businesses. <laughs> One business fighting with another business, yes. It's, you know, I'll just take that. Thank you. People aren't generally going to jail with that sort of thing. No. So the stories aren't usually as sad. Yeah, no, I can't. I can't. Um, but okay, but we have to go back to Jerry. Carrie Ann Moss is awesome. I meant to look up and haven't had a chance to look up her IMDb because obviously she was a huge thing when the Matrix came out. I mean, blew up huge, especially obviously in geek world. So you know, her reappearing kind of in a geek show like this is cool. But um, I don't know that she did a lot after that, but I am loving her in this role. She obviously, you know, for those of you who are House of Cards fans, she kind of reminds me of a brunette version of Robin Wright, um, which I would is totally meant as a compliment because I love Robin Wright in uh, House of Cards. And of course, in uh, uh Princess Bride. Oh, my God. My brain is so fuzzy tonight. But anyway, but um, so I do, uh, you know, so far, like I said, I'm only two episodes in, but it is very fun. Um, You know, the fact that she has a wife. I love, again, any way where these shows and Netflix is doing a good job of that with some diversity and, you know, doesn't always have to be kind of white, hetero, you know, and all of that sort of stuff. So I like that, too. Yes, and we'll have a lot of fun talking about a podcast just about Jerry with the all the ethical issues that later happened. Uh, just just as a preview, there are a lot of ethical issues and and the divorce proceedings. So that'll be low. All right, I've got to hurry up and finish watching these. There's, I started a post because there's some extreme things with the divorce. <laughs> uh oh. Yeah, there's entire ethical pod. We could teach a class for CLE with the bad stuff she does. So All right. So yeah. Uh, so a couple other things. Let's let's talk about granted it's always fun when civil litigators do this. Let's talk about the insanity defense for Hope because <laughs> uh, you have this person that Jessica rescues that Jessica immediately identifies with her because she, Jessica went through the same horrible experience and her hope's parents retain Jessica to go save the day. And I instantly liked the parents. I, I loved the dad 
who immediately starts looking at Jessica's broken door, wanting to fix it, being dad. Mm-hmm. That's, that's just who he is. Do you have any glue? I can fix this. I can, re- you know, because that's, that's a good dad. That's just what dads do. And that was neat. But looking at this college victim, there's a little Patty Hearst elements that someone might see in her. But you think uh, it was Charles Manson, right? I mean, because it is the closest equivalent, because obviously Kilgrave goes beyond this, but the closest equivalent would be a cult leader who, you know, basically gets their brainwashed cult victims to do something horrible, um, you know, and then what is a the liability then for those brainwashed cult members? And that is fascinating. So I did some research on cases with this. So Hope executing her parents. Oh, that was so awful. This is where I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle this show. It's very dark. (laughs) Yeah, like my jaw dropped when that happened. Oh, God, that was awful. I was just like, oh, and I liked them. This sucks. Well, and then she talked about her brother being all alone. I'm like, okay, seriously, I can't watch this show when it's dark out. I can only watch this show like during the high noon. You know, and the character looking like a mess in jail because mm-hmm. she's living with horrific guilt and from being violated for a month on a mm-hmm. cellular level, mm-hmm. uh, being used basically as a living doll. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. re- just appalling, appalling treatment by Kilgrave. Yes. So I look for cases with brainwashing, cases mm. with mind control. And looked up New York's insanity defense. So New York's insanity defense requires that the defendant uh, either did not understand the nature and the consequences of the criminal conduct or understanding that such conduct was wrong. With someone who's the victim of the purple man, it's a little different. They probably know it's wrong, and they're screaming in their mind, no, I don't want to do this, but they're still doing it. Yeah. So, yeah, that's where it does not fit. Well, it's almost more like some of those horrific shows that were over a while, too, where this whole idea, you know, it's similar to, but not the same of, if you don't go do this horrible thing, I'm going to kill you or your family, kind of that sort of coercion, too, would be another, not exact um, uh, comparison, but something somewhat similar. Yeah, so looking for brainwashing cases, that's that's where I started with Okay. This. There are some... Um, Funky cases. And so when you had the uh, uh, Hare Krishnas from the late Mm -hmm. 70s, there were family members who claimed that their loved ones were kidnapped by this religious group and saying that they were a cult and that they were under mind control because whenever their family member was confronted, they began chanting and acting in a very atypical way than what the family was used to. And the court stated... That's actually not a crime, and there wasn't a crime of mind control. This, this is a 1977 case, and, and what hmm. the court stated, the concept of mind control or brainwashing is not a crime in and of itself. The fact that indoctrination and constant chanting may be used as a defense mechanism to ward off what another person is saying or doing is devastating, and it is equally devastating when used as a technique for brainwashing or mind control. It may even destroy healthy brain cells. It may also cause an inability to think, to be reasonable or logical. However, this does not constitute a crime. Neither brainwashing nor mind control per se is a crime. It cannot be used as a basis for making out the elements of the crimes charged herein. 
Uh, start fast forwarding just a very short time where you had people who are members of a cult kill people. And the court took the point of view on those cases. Uh, no, you were in a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Cute mind control defense, but you were in a criminal conspiracy and you killed someone, which, uh, I mean, the Patty Hearst case is long and complicated with how she mm. was kidnapped, all that she went through, how psychologists verified she lost 12 IQ points from the experience. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but then she helped rob a bank. Mm-hmm. And procedurally, convicting her, they did everything right. Mm-hmm. Uh, President Clinton uh, ultimately pardoned her. And I believe mm. President Carter either commuted the sentence or, or did something else with it as well. But uh, that's like one of the closest things that, that you could look at besides, say, the Manson family mm-hmm. and outright cults or international terrorism. You know, Because when you look at some of those behaviors, it's like that's, mm-hmm. that's fanatical, uh, but it's c- completely different to what Kilgrave did. The closest thing on point was a petition by Sirhan Sirhan about a decade ah, ago. Wow, which for our younger viewers is a man who assassinated Robert Kennedy. Yeah, and... Who, for those of our younger viewers, <laughs> is the younger brother of John F. Kennedy and was running for president in 1968, right, when he was assassinated? Yeah, in June, he just locked up the Democratic nomination. He had been the Attorney General of the United States. He was a senator from New York, and he was a charismatic person who did, believed in helping people, and he was gunned down in cold blood. But and I there's don't, a striking photo of it, too, isn't there, of him dead it, on the floor? And it was at the conventions uh, center, right? Or at the yeah, convention, wasn't it, backstage? Yeah, he just locked up the California... Yeah primary and went back there and Sirhan Sirhan had come in and walked up to him and pulled out a gun and shot him and was still trying to shoot him while people were tackling him. Wow. Just, just horrible. Just absolutely horrible. So they claim, you know, 40 years later that there was this hypnotic programming and trying Ah. to explain the effect that had upon him. And that he remembered uh, seeing a woman in a polka dot dress and seeing a bartender give him signs. And, and the court pretty much shot it down. Yeah. And, and so there, the, the writ of habeas corpus was denied, hmm. rightfully. So <laughs> have fun in jail uh, or prison rotting for killing a United States senator. But again, I, I'm just a conservative who has a really hard time with a senator getting shot in cold blood. Uh, horrible. Yes. So anyway, back to Hope. Uh, I think an attorney could defend her with the insanity defense. I think it would be hard because you do need to prove that Kilgrave existed. Now, you do have a world where you have flying aircraft carriers and alien invasion and you know people are still going to church and still religious, so it's not like society fell apart after the incident in New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I would structure the argument going like, here's this really good student. She does track and field. She's high jump. She's amazing. You want us to believe that overnight she turned into a sugar baby with a guy who was 20 years older than her, mm-hmm. who ditches all of her friends, ditches her family, 
lies in her own waist, waiting because she's following orders at this point, I think you could structure this argument going like, this doesn't add up to someone who has mental capacity to commit a crime, that there's some programming going on here. Now, the jury would be interesting to try to convince of this because would they be callous to the idea of somebody with a mental control superpower or accepting of it? And so I, I, one comment to this blog that, that was on Google Plus was they, the jury would be callous to it. They would want evidence. Um, I would try to unpanel a jury that would be more accepting of the idea that there are super people out there because we've seen them. Big guy turns green, knocks down buildings. We get that. Mm -hmm. So it would be an interesting case to put together. You would need some expert testimony. Evidence of Kilgrave's existence uh, would need to be presented. Well, I also think this is a case. Sorry to jump in, but I think, you know, what you're going to is you would need to convince the jury that these people had been violated in this way without any evidence of physical harm, had been violated by another person. And so in some ways, it's actually an allegory for what a lot of rape victims go through. And in fact, we see it right now with Bill Cosby, right? I mean, Hope's even getting help if one person says, I've been violated or raped, and these Hope and Jessica and the others were metaphorically raped. Obviously, their entire bodies and beings were violated and probably physically raped. Um, But if Hope alone says, I've been violated, the way our criminal justice system is set up right now, unfortunately, those kind of victims aren't believed until they have other people who say the same thing. Now that there are, what, 30, 40, 50, you know, people who say, yes, Bill Cosby has done the same thing to me, now people are believing those victims. And Jessica's doing exactly that with Hope. She's like, nobody's going to believe Hope on her own, so I have to go around and line up a whole bunch of other people who will testify the same way, which is kind of a sad statement on how our criminal justice system actually treats some of these crimes and some of these violations. Yes. This would be a little more complicated than just the normal horrible that we have. It is, but it's a similar situation. It's the only it's thing we can... Super, I mean, the superhero shows are all about allegories to real life anyway, and this is just another allegory to, again, you know, people who are violated without physical evidence of the violation, um, the criminal justice system tends not to believe them. Well, that making it harder to prove, objectively, they could look like they were a willing participant which, which is it, also often a defense in rape crimes, right? They yep. wanted this. So, again, it's, it's very similar, actually. It is. It, she wore short shirts. She wore skirt, short skirts. She wanted this kind of thing. Yeah. The so, fact that that's, sorry, I can get on a very high horse about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was, I remember a criminal law class case where the, the polled jury actually stated that. It's like, ugh. Oh, God. She was dressed for a good time. That's what one juror said. It was like, oh, my God. See, our criminal justice system isn't set up to deal with these kinds. Of, it's set up to deal with certain types of crimes pretty well, but there are types of crimes it is not uh, equipped to deal with well. No, and... No, I mean, like, those are horrible cases, and we have people who litigate them and defend them, and it's horrible. Going to, to Jessica Jones, uh, to lighten a dark subject with a 
horrifically dark TV series. It's uh, what Hope goes through is rape and mm-hmm. torture and a lot of bad things that hopefully a psychologist would be able to uh, determine that she has PTSD of some kind, that she's mm-hmm. a victim of some kind, which hopefully would be used to prove innocence, to poke holes, to create reasonable doubt that this was not a willing act of her own, but a programmed a hypnotic suggestion instead, uh, which, again, we're in the world of sci-fi with this, but that's that's what a lawyer would have to do in this fictional world, which is not easy uh, because the legal system isn't designed for these sort of things. No. Uh, so that being said, we'll do a... <laughs> At the end, I'm like, it's a very dark show, so it's hard not to have dark podcasts about it. As awesome as it is, I have just decided this very second that what I'm going to have to do on Netflix from now on is every time I watch a couple of Jessica Jones shows, I'm then going to have to finish with an episode of The Bee in Apartment 23 to like help lift my mood then before I go to bed or something. Yeah, hold the dog. You know, it's it's uh... the dog's on it, but seriously, Kristen Ritter in The Bee in Apartment 23. If you've never watched that, she is fantastic. The rest of the show is so-so, but she is hysterical. Well, that, oh, and James Vanderbeek is good, too. Yeah, I listen to the Marvel Report podcast, or ah. This Week in Marvel. I'm blanking on its proper name. But I listened to a podcast where they interviewed her, and she's so neat. And, she's, and she admits that she's goofy and fun, playing this hyper-dark, tortured character. Yeah, that's got to be hard. Yeah, and so she is acting, but she sounds like a really fun person, and it's neat watching her on Twitter and Instagram because she's fun, uh, and that's just that's neat. And she's really good on social media. But that and this be- is a great role for her, so I am excited that we'll have a couple, of probably you know, some dark podcasts about this. There's some heavy topics, obviously, but it is a great show. And shout out to Marvel and Netflix for doing it. They did a magnificent job. I. You know, comparing it to you can't really compare it to Daredevil because it's different, and I can't explain to you my feelings on thoughts on it until you've seen everything. So I, I will defer that until we get you to episode thirteen uh, on on one of the differences I have because this might surprise you. Uh, that being said, all right, look at it. see big uh, what kind of cliffhanger here. So I will hurry up and binge watch the rest. It's it's just Thanksgiving. So what? How do you celebrate Thanksgiving? Watch a show with a lot of post traumatic stress disorder. That's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a wonderful way it's to celebrate. It's a perfect Thanksgiving. All right, well, I hope you have a wonderful holiday, Josh. You too, and to all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in and to the ABA Journal. Thank oh, you. Yeah. Woo-hoo, thank you. Thank you. We are so honored to be on the Blog 100 for the third year in a row. We appreciate everyone who listens to us, who reads our blog. Uh, it's a wonderful honor. Uh, 2015 has been one of my favorite years ever. As an attorney, <laughs> we spoke at Comic-Con. That was awesome. We were nominated for a Geeky Award, which was 60, no- 60 people submitted, and we were one of the five nominated, so thank you. And to top it off with making the ABA Journal Blog 100 is truly a magnificent way to cap off the year. So thank It's you. a hat trick. We'll call it our hat trick. Yeah, exactly. So with that, stay geeky, America. Stay geeky.